Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's podcast, Head to Toe, as we move around the body. My name is Daisy Cunningham and I am the college's heritage manager and librarian. Hello, my name is Laura Burgess and I am a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's heritage team. I thought we could maybe start with the physical thing, the brain itself. And my mind initially went to brain in a jar it's kind of become the symbol of the manic scientist mad cackle brains in jars because especially kind of victorians and then into the 20th century there's an idea that very intelligent or very interesting people will have very interesting brains Um, So a lot of interesting people's brains are preserved and not always of their choice. So Einstein's brain, after he died in 1955, was removed, it was photographed, it was cut up into 240 pieces, and then these pieces were handed out to various scientists. Einstein did not want this to be done. That just sounds like such a random choice by these people to, to take a brain and cut it up into 240 pieces, as if it's just like a party bag item. Maybe they thought the 240, you know, different pieces would be analysed by different people and everyone would be able to kind of study his brain. But he said in his will that he wanted to be cremated, so he didn't want his body preserved. So I don't think anybody specifically said, do you mind if we cut up your brain into 240 pieces? And he said no. But he said what he wanted to happen to his body after he died, and that wasn't what happened to it. It's creepy. I'm not going to lie. It's very creepy. But I do wonder if, if using their brain to find what made them the way that they were instead of it being like maybe it isn't a physical thing you need maybe a living (laughs) to to review it instead of just a brain in a jar i agree and i also think there's something about having decided what you're gonna find before you start looking i'm gonna find that einstein's brain is remarkable if you think that before you've even looked at the brain then you're going to find something that's going to show you that because you've already decided. And it was the same thing in Soviet Russia. They preserved both Lenin and Stalin's brains. Babbage, the English mathematician who's sort of described as the father of computers, has half a brain at the London Science Museum, the other half at the Hunterian. But there are lots of people whose brains are studied who are not then preserved. Even though preserving really came in the mid-1800s, they were looking at people's brains long before then, but they didn't have quite so long to do it because they couldn't then preserve it. So Beethoven, Mozart, George Byron, lots of people's brains get looked at with this idea of finding kind of the hidden spark of genius somewhere in the anatomy. I don't know, I kind of would like the idea of them finding something absolutely amazing in, in someone they did not expect. Maybe I should put that in my will, that you can check my brain. I'm, I'm a very ordinary person. And then I hope something amazing is found. 
So another thing that I was sort of looking into is around the history of emotions. It's kind of a, a huge area of study and obviously history of emotions covers many, many different things. It's, you know, we're talking about love, hate, fear, anger, or, you know, guilt, shame, all those sorts of things. It is something that makes me a little bit nervous when we're looking at history because it feels like sometimes the people who record their feelings are much more often people who are rich, very literate, it can end up being more of a history of what middle and upper class people feel about things, which which does make mm. me a little bit nervous because for a lot of history, poor people's feelings are much less likely to be written down. And also, how often when people write down their emotions, are they actually recording what they actually feel? I think part of it to me is what are they writing for? So maybe, mm. you know, somebody's writing a diary, then unless there's a lot more at play here, they are in theory writing for themselves. But on the sort of few occasions where you get examples of poor people writing pre-20th century, it's usually something like they are applying for relief, you know, for money from the parish. And you're like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, of course you say that you're scared and sad and whatever, because you're kind of playing on the heartstrings. You're trying to get something, yes. you know? Yeah, I guess it's, yeah, like, as you say, there's not a lot of other materials that historians can review to give what they might consider an unbiased or authentic representation of working class or the poorer classes real emotions yeah one of the theories is that the acceptability of emotions goes through massive peaks and troughs through history so there are periods where you know especially men are expected to be incredibly stoic Mm -hmm. And then there are periods when men are expected to show a lot of emotions. And it's not a consistent slope. So during the 1700s, when there's this kind of era of what's called the era of sensibility, but basically emotional awareness, it's quite acceptable for men particularly to cry, to be visibly emotional, to share their emotions. And then you hit the Victorian period, and then it's all stiff upper lip and keep calm mm -hmm. and carry on and things. There's that idea of trying, um, I guess, what people accept from from men as a behaviour, what is considered manly. I mean, we're talking at a time where there's discussion of, of gender and um, yeah, what it means to be masculine, what it means to be feminine, I guess. I feel like maybe we're hopefully coming back into this time where men being able to show emotions, being able to, you know, cry without being perceived as weak. And also, I think it also shows that a lot of some emotions were considered bad and others are considered good. Because if you see stoic women, it's kind of seen very differently to stoic men and usually more negative a woman to maybe not have i don't know maternal instincts is considered bad and unnatural it's how society has put these like these are good these are bad these will we will accept these we won't accept i think i think there's there's a lot that we can learn from it just because sometimes we can get ourselves into a position where we think the way things are now or the way they always have been you know these gender roles in terms of emotions are just sort of somehow innate so it is interesting to look at the history and go well actually it's had all these peaks and troughs this is just our current society our current culture it has been differently in the past and actually there are some things that we we assume are just innate biology that are not they are just our current society 
before we get into psychiatry and mental health and things like that, obviously the terms that are used in psychiatry in the history of psychiatry are nowadays pretty offensive to a lot of people, understandably. But, you know, we are going to talk with the terms that people used at the time. So there is going to be lunacy, there is going to be crazy, insanity, madness. But that's because we are using, in context, the terms that were used at the time. So I just wanted to kind of get that out there before we kind of delve into it. I've always been particularly interested in the development of criminal lunacy um, as it was developed and how medical men perceived it. And, um, and obviously, you can imagine it was all usually very sexist, very classist very racist in um, how they developed this kind of archetype of what criminal lunacy was. But I also was very interested in, in women, in psychiatry, their experiences. When you think about women and asylums, you think of like women being locked away by greedy husbands or like greedy family or women being thrown in because they don't meet the kind of gender norms um, set out by Victorian England. So yeah, kind of all over the place, but mainly just how people were kind of victimised by the system, but also in other ways that it developed to what we understand it to be today. But yeah, it kind of makes me think of when you're going slightly earlier into the 1700s and before, that psychiatry such as it is at that point is essentially there's really two things that they kind of split people into. There's mania and melancholy. And mania is the type of thing where, unless you're very, very wealthy and important, if you are defined as you know, having mania, you're probably going to be institutionalised or at least kept locked up somewhere. Melancholy is a bit different. It's more often associated with more sort of refined, wealthy people. Not always, but more often. And melancholy is more the sort of one where, you know, great thinkers and poets and writers might have melancholy. So they're sort of, they're quite different. The manic person is a risk to themselves, but also a risk to others, potentially. They are the sort of person who the kind of stereotype is, they kind of tear off their clothes and run through the streets or something like that. Whereas the melancholy person just sort of wants to sit in their room and be left alone. And, and, and I guess being melancholy, you know, what they were witnessing, they would view as sort of a more extreme version of something they'd all experience. So sort of, you know, when you're sad for five minutes, well, these people have this to a far greater, more all-consuming extent, whereas the stereotype that they were kind of writing about the the manic person was something that was kind of breaking rules breaking conventions in a way that made people uncomfortable at the college of physicians we have what we call the great hall it's a big hall which is used for exams and weddings and all sorts of things like that and there are paintings on the walls my favorite of the paintings is a portrait of a man called samuel batty tuke and the reason I like that portrait particularly is all of the other portraits are painted by illustrious artists of the day, you know, Henry Rayburn, people like that. But Samuel Batichuk's portrait was painted by one of his patients mm. because the portrait itself was part of the therapy that he was delivering. So it's not just a painting of a person, it's an example of early art therapy being used on a patient because he was a great proponent of the idea that you can use gardening, you can use all sorts of activities as a way to, to help people. Yeah, it's weird when this idea, the shifting idea of a lot of physicians who are wanting to specialise in the care of the mentally ill, that then instead of just confining them into these 
asylums that by the mid 1800s are actually um self-sustaining kind of little communities um there's a kind of development of like asylum architecture in which how can you best build an asylum to meet the needs of moral therapy and that's kind of big gardens so away from london so you see a lot of them pop up in england in like surrey um or up in the north they have their own railways going to and from they have farming they have cobblers they're kind of building up this place where patients can go um and not always rich patients i found it very interesting that these um so broadmoor would have a church so there's always a an asylum chaplain available which i guess ties into this idea of moral therapy it's difficult sometimes to know fully what the intention of these doctors were and it feels sometimes looking at places that did this sort of moral therapy that it wasn't necessarily about curing people it was about teaching people how to hide their differences you know they would have you know afternoon tea or they would go watch a play or they would have a dinner party within the asylum so they were you know almost playing a game of dress up really but it was sort of teaching you how to act in a certain way in polite society it wasn't necessarily always dealing with any underlying issues it was going here is how you pretend to be the right sort of person in society so again it's this very much approach of to be better you must be useful because if you are unwell, you're no longer useful to society. And it's so interesting when you look at, when we again look at this, the context of moral therapy um, that was kind of coming out and then the, how they would identify mental illness. Sometimes it would be too much or not enough. So looking at women, I found a few that were like overly religious was considered mentally ill, but then having no religion was also considered mentally ill. Um, being too quiet, but being uh, too loud essentially in the victorian period they kind of had this kind of i'm thinking about a scale where if you're in between this green part you're fine but if you go adhere to either side then you're in trouble the idea of studying the mind and and mental illness was difficult because for a long time every branch of medicine essentially came back to humoral theory and then you get into the 1800s and a lot of branches of medicine start separating off and becoming what we would think of now as being scientific and increasingly study of, of mental health seems to be an outlier because it isn't really moving on in the same way so it feels like people who were looking at the mind and, and looking at mental health are trying to make it scientific to fit in with all the other branches of medicine that are becoming scientific one of the ways they try and do that is through moral therapy by going there is a structured way of treating this thing they're trying to find something that mm. has a, the equivalent robustness to the sorts of treatments people are using for other things. And so it feels like moral therapy is probably the best of a, a not great bunch. It's very interesting to see the, these physicians trying to essentially connect psychiatry or like develop psychiatry by connecting it to the body physical data or physical things to, to prove that um, these disorders are, are, are true and these disorders are um, worthy of, of medical uh, study. Essentially, I kind of argue that they used it as a way to um, professionalise themselves and uh, say, hey guys, hey uh, cardiologists and, and um, all these others, we, we're valid too. For our case study today, we're going to look at an unassuming little book, which is indicative of a very real fear that people had in the 1700s and 1800s. The book is titled The Private Asylum, How I Got In and Out, 
an autobiography. Fear of false imprisonment was a growing concern in 18th century Britain. Private madhouses, where the inmates were paying customers, were particularly susceptible because there was little oversight of their practices. Although legislation to regulate asylums was introduced in 1774, its powers were limited and flagrant abuses of the system continued. As the number of asylums increased dramatically over the course of the 19th century, they were increasingly used to house individuals who were not necessarily a threat to themselves or others, but rather viewed as a social inconvenience. This was of particular concern to wealthy individuals, where any actions which didn't comply with social norms could be seen as damaging the reputation of entire families. Public fear that incarceration could be used by families to obtain the patient's estate or to free a spouse to remarry was also widespread and was a subject depicted in popular culture, including the work of Daniel Defoe. Growing concerns about this misuse of asylums led to the establishment of a select committee to investigate the issue in 1815. While subsequent legislation expanded the responsibilities of magistrates, an effective nationwide system of regulation was not introduced until 1845. In large part, this new legislation was the result of extensive public campaigns. Particularly prominent in this was a group which included ex-inmates who had formed a body called the Alleged Lunatic Society in the 1840s. The author of this particular book, Reverend Henry Newcombe, was on holiday in Scotland in 1859 when his wife and sister became concerned that he seemed unwell. Newcombe decided to visit a doctor to relieve their doubts. He was then detained in a private asylum in Edinburgh for nine months. This detention cost Newcombe approximately £500. Written 30 years later, this text details his initial medical assessment and treatment. One physician believed Newcombe's invention of a stove which will heat the room by the consumption of a newspaper in it was proof that he had lapsed into an imbecile state. This invention was no fantasy, however, and Newcomb had already patented it six weeks before being detained. He also later received an honourable mention for his invention at the Smoke Exhibition at South Kensington in 1882. Our edition of Newcomb's work includes a letter he wrote, which is addressed to the President of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. In it, Newcomb states that, quote, with many of your profession, their hearts are better than their heads. He asks for the President's assistance to get a formal review of his case and certification of his sanity to demonstrate to his family and his parishioners his fitness to remain outside the walls of the asylum and continue his work. Newcomb notes he remains unsure as to why he was detained, but hopes, quote, if anyone should find himself, through the fears of an affectionate wife, inside a private asylum, he will at least learn from my experiences what not to do. In this short clip, Professor David Purdy, a medical professor and a former clinical sub-dean of the Leeds University Medical School, explores the origins of the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. Edinburgh's first mental hospital. I think one of the most important fellows of the college of that era, of the 18th century, was Dr. Andrew Duncan. And he was responsible for the inauguration of a new hospital in Edinburgh, 
in a whole new division of medical services here in Scotland's capital. What happened to promote this was the death of one of our great poets. Uh, a great poet of Edinburgh was Robert Ferguson, who was the inspiration to Robert Burns, our greatest poet and songwriter here in Scotland. And Robert Ferguson died following a fall uh, in the old town of Edinburgh in the year 1774, when he was 24 years old. We lost him at 24. And the reason that he died has been under much discussion ever since. I think he died of what's called a subdural hematoma. That means that he had a head injury and a clot of blood developed under the dura mater, which lines the brain. And he was misdiagnosed at the time as being insane. And he was put into what's called the Bedlam. It was the Asylum for the Insane, as it was then called. And there he died. We think he may well have died of hypothermia, because such were the awful conditions in the Bedlam at that time. And the death of Robert Ferguson, who was a friend of Andrew Duncan, promoted Dr. Duncan's idea that there should be some proper provision for individuals with mental health issues at the time. And he began to work and to raise funds and acquire land down in part of South Edinburgh called uh, Morningside. And there, years later, there arose the Royal Edinburgh Hospital, which is still there to this day and is a refuge and a place of diagnosis and treatment for mental dis disabilities uh, among our population and from further afield in Edinburgh as well. Thanks to Dr. Duncan being moved by the death of one of our great poets. Welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. According to historical recipes, your brain could be moist, weak, or cold. One printed recipe book, John Moncrief's Poor Man's Physician, prescribed the following for a rheumatic brain. Quote, Fume or smoke taken up in the nose. Dry roses, sage, rosemary, incense, taken in smoke or made in powder and sprinkled on the head. The same book recommended for the cold distemper of the brain. Quote, powder of the dry leaves of tobacco, snuffed up in the nose, snails with their shells bruised and applied to the forehead, a gargle of mustard seed, an issue in the hinder part of the neck. An issue was a constantly weeping sore, which doctors would keep open using an irritant such as mustard powder, or by placing a pea in the wound. The same recipe book recommended for mortification of the brain, quote, Apply cloths wet in water or vinegar to the stones, or, which is better, let them be wet with rose water and vinegar. Fair water may suffice to wash the feet, and if the feet of the sick man be put therein, when it is a little warmed for the space of three or four hours, it frees him from his frenzy and makes him sleep. The same effect is wrought by house leek, beaten and laid to the soles of the feet. Great house leek, bruised with women's milk and laid to the forehead, appeaseth and produces sleep. But as soon as he falleth asleep, you must take it away, lest he fall into some sleeping disease. 
Another recipe, this time for headaches, recommends anointing the head with oil of amber, horse leeches 10 or 12 put about the temples, and sheep's lungs applied hot. But most importantly, quote, In all pains of the head, of whatever cause, if other means fail, and the greatness of the pain make thee run to extremities, a vesicatory applied all over the head, after it is shaven, will cure it. A vesicatory is a blistering agent, so a cream or other solution which, when applied to the skin, made it come out in blisters. It was thought that these blisters were a way of forcing the toxins out of the body. A different recipe for headaches recommended that, quote, the lodestone laid upon the head takes away all pain. A lodestone is a naturally magnetized piece of mineral, so it's a naturally occurring magnet. And these were quite prized possessions which were kept and used within communities as part of uh, traditional or folk medicine. Um, another treatment from the same book recommended this time as a remedy for a weak brain, swallowing cobwebs, smelling musk and sprinkling powdered amber on the head, as well as regularly eating jam and rosemary. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at rcpeheritage and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.